Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. About 60% of Californians over 12 years old are now fully vaccinated. For a lot of us, that means life is starting to feel like it's getting back to somewhat normal. But we can't forget that in some places, like Kings County in the San Joaquin Valley, nearly 65% of folks who are Latinx haven't even gotten one shot. But some artists and musicians are on a mission to change that. You're hearing legendary ranchera singer Carmen Cristina Moreno. She's sometimes called the Chicana First Lady of Song. And she composed this piece as part of a project called Actavando Contra COVID. The idea is to boost vaccination rates in places like the Central Valley. And Carmen Cristina is just one of a number of musicians and poets and actors who've all created original work for this project, which includes videos on social media, broadcasts on Spanish-language radio, and live performances. Joining us to talk about the campaign is Amy Kitchener. She's the executive director of the Alliance for California Traditional Arts and Hugo Morales, who's the executive director of Radio Bilingue, the National Latino Public Radio Network. Hi, you guys. Hi. Hi, Sasha. Let's start with Juan Felipe Herrera. He's a famous poet from Fresno, and he's also the former poet laureate of the United States. And he wrote an original radio drama as part of this project. ¿Qué? ¿Qué? Despierta, Anacleta. Conmigo no se juega. Yo no necesito esas mascarillas de calceta. Soy de árbol, soy de fierro. Um, so we were, we were just hearing the character Prudencio, uh, who's, who's very... You know, he's really sure that he's so strong. He's strong like iron and like a tree. Like, he's not going to need the vaccine. And so, um, you know, he's arguing with his wife about how he's strong and he doesn't need this. You know, the story, it's its so beautiful the way it weaves these different voices and characters in a family and different generations. Come on, Papi. La vacuna. Just a shot in the arm and a cool mask, Dad. Como Halloween. I love you, Papi. So let's talk about some of the musicians involved in this effort. You have a group from Bakersfield, Grupo Recreación Musical, uh, who are pretty well known for playing in the Mixteco community. They're very popular, um, especially at social dances and, 
you know, one of their main forms is the chilena, you know, the archetypal social dance music of the Mixteca in Oaxaca. You cannot have a party without chilena music. And so Grupo, um, they have a pretty big following on YouTube, and there's also a lot of videos they've produced. They're from the hometown of San Juan Mistepec in the Huchlawaka district of Oaxaca. And that's a, a really big sending town of people um, here in the valley, especially. One of the communities that is most vulnerable to this uh, pandemic has been the indigenous community. Uh, many, I'm Mixteco myself, uh, many of my people are field workers. While many of us, including myself, were able to isolate in our home, uh, most of these folks were not able to. I mean, none, frankly. I mean, the farm workers had to be out there, the essential workers, because they had to eat. They had to feed their families. They had to earn an income. Many of them are undocumented, so there was essentially no assistance for them. Those that are dying under the age of 50, which are numerous, are Mexican-Americans and indigenous people, the, uh, uh, the rather being audience. So it's not over for the essential workers. What are the messages that people are getting about why they shouldn't take the vaccine? Are there myths circulating in the community, or is it really just this distrust uh, around the government? Well, I think it happens around, you know, the gossip, shall we say, and also in Facebook and other media like that. You know, unfortunately, it, it plays on, you know, the fears, etc. I mean, just an example, uh, the Bracero program, which expanded decades from the 40s up until the beginning of the 60s, Part of the process of immigrating or crossing the border by these contract workers who lived in poverty and were forced to economically to come to the U.S. when the U.S. was welcoming them, they were sprayed at the border with DDT. This fear of Western medicine and America is is not just made up. You know, there's a history Mm -hmm. there that is very Mm -hmm. concrete. There's a lyric in a song by another group, Los Originarios del Plan, led by Leonel Mendoza, where they talk about exactly some of these concerns and really share the message that the vaccine is not going to hurt you. They are an Arpa Grande group uh, from the Tierra Caliente in Michoacan uh, region of Mexico. But they, um, they live in Merced and Modesto. And when we talked about what kind of song would they compose for this, Leonel immediately said, oh, well, we should, we should use the form of a valona. Del oriente al occidente se vio morir mucha gente. Ya lo tengo tan presente. And I said, well, what's a valona? And he said, well, this is one of our traditional forms it's like lyric poetry, and we use it for expressing social concerns. You know, he he thought it was really important to use the very traditional form from his area because it was a way to call his community into action. You know, he said when when people hear the valona, 
they know I'm talking to them. ¿Te acuerdas, mi amor, cuando piscábamos fruta, manzanas, uva, fresa, luego algodón, betabel y coliflor? This was part of the performances that we did out at the Madeira no flea market on a Sunday a few weeks ago. Protégete contra la COVID-19-19 y lo de la mascarilla. It's dedicated to farm workers. Um, it's by, you know, Juan Felipe, who is the child of farm workers. And it's really a, like a love poem of spending so many years together, I want you to be by my side. And it's about the promises um, and the joys of family and community that await us if we can get vaccinated. No existe nada más fuerte que nuestra familia y nuestro amor. Hugo Morales of Radio Bilingüe, Amy Kitchener, Executive Director of the Alliance for California Traditional Arts, talking about their project Actavando Contra COVID. Thank you both. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. Conquista el sol. Vacúnate. La salud. Of course, we've lost so many Californians to COVID. More than 63,000 people have died from the virus in our state. Over the past few months, some of you who have lost family or friends have been paying tribute to your loved ones here on our show. Today, we're going to hear from the family of Tony Escobar, who was from the Mission District in San Francisco. He was a shark in many ways. You know, he didn't want to move backwards. He just always wanted to move forward. That's Tony's oldest son, Jason Escobar. He remembers his dad was always on the move. Tony had a couple of jobs. One of them was being a traveling notary. In his free time, he was still an energizer bunny, which is what his family called him. If he was at a party, there's no sense in sitting down and not doing anything. He's going to get up and start dancing, and he's going to start, you know, moving and talking to people. By the way, this is a song that meant a lot to Tony as a kid. Cuando calienta el sol by Javier Solis. Being forced to stop was probably the worst thing that could happen to Tony Escobar. He was 68 years old when he died from COVID earlier this year. Tony's kids, Jason Escobar and Athena Laba, as well as Tony's sister, Ivania Angel, reached out to us to share his story and honor his life. We start with Ivania. My family comes from Managua, Nicaragua. And in around 1956, my father immigrated with my brothers. Tony came to this country, I think he was about five years old or less, actually. They talked about how they lived in many houses around the mission area and um, how they had to sleep on the same mattress at times. He was definitely a go-getter and a hustler. He took a lot after my father, who was like that. My father immigrated into this country and became a real estate broker and owned his own company. And then Tony followed him in those steps. And he never let any opportunity go. 
I do remember going to watch him play basketball at Mission High School, and I thought that he had springs in his shoes because this guy could jump, and he would jump. He took great pride in the fact that he was inducted into the Hall of Fame at Mission High School in 2017, and it was one of the, one of the definitely the highlights of his life. When he was in school, they gave him the nickname Roadrunner. And uh, on his letterman jacket that he is actually buried in, he actually has a roadrunner drawn on the, the, the sleeve of it. You know, he wasn't happy unless he was moving around. One of the biggest things that he always kind of imparted on us was uh, work hard, play hard. I believe he contracted it doing a notary somewhere. He was careful, very careful at first. He was scared, like all of us when it first came out. and. He didn't want to get it, so I remember my mom getting a bunch of hand sanitizer and wipes, and you know, he was like, I'm, I'm only meeting people outside and they have to bring their own pens. He was doing so many notaries a day, and then towards, I would say towards when he contracted it, I know he laxed a little bit more, and you know, he wouldn't be wearing his mask. I'm like, Dad, your mask, and you know, so I think he was careful, but not as careful as he could have been. Like my sister was saying, because he did so many notaries and he interacted with so many people, it's really hard to contact trace with him. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you're talking about like, I mean, literally it was seven or eight notaries a day. He had a little niche where he was one of the only notaries in a lot of his circles that spoke Spanish. My dad didn't say no. He would go from San Jose to, I mean, I remember him doing one in like Vacaville. So my dad went into the hospital on the 17th. My mom went into the hospital on the 26th, the day after Christmas. It's very tough to talk about. They were next door to each other during this time. And um, my mom was actually going to be ventilated first before my dad, she had actually refused it and just told them, tell me what I need to do other than that and I'll do it. And so she, thank God, was able to fight through it. And about, I think, a week later, my dad ended up being ventilated. They called me uh, on the 10th in the morning and they said, you know, a decision has to be made to take him off the ventilator. We decided, okay, you know, the best situation for my dad, what he would have wanted in keeping with what I think his best wishes would have been would was to take him off the ventilator rather than push it forward and poke more holes in him and, you know, it, you know. We did get to be with him at the end. My brothers and my mom and I got to be with him and hold him at the end. So the hospital made special circumstances for us to do that. If you met this guy, you would see the cheerfulness of what our family is, just based on this ambassador to, to our, um, you know, to our little family. That was Tony Escobar's son, Jason, his daughter, Athena Labah, and Tony's sister, Ivania Angel. 
They spoke with KQED's Brian Watt, who produced this remembrance with help from Alexander Gonzalez. Jason, by the way, co-owns a pizza place called Beer Nerds. It's in San Francisco's Mission District, where his dad grew up. Jason honored his dad by naming one of the pizzas Roadrunner, which was Tony's nickname in high school. So one thing about this pandemic is it did give some of us more time to take notice of our surroundings. Maybe you're one of those people who started noticing birds more, spending more time in your yard or looking out your window, seeing those creatures in a whole new way. Even though we're noticing them more, though, there are actually fewer birds now than there were 50 years ago. For this next story, part of the series California Foodways, Lisa Morehouse explores how farmers can help birds survive and tells us about some new research showing how birds are helping farmers. I'm having a little trouble finding blue heron farms outside of Watsonville. I'm a little turned around, but then I see them, small wooden boxes every few feet apart on fence posts, looking like lanterns surrounding the farm, and I know I'm in the right place. I'm meeting up with farmer Dennis Tamura, not to talk about the organic crops he's growing, but to talk about what's in those boxes, baby birds. There's a, there's a bird right there. It's coming out of that box. <laughs> See? A fluffy bird with a comically large yellow mouth peeks out of a hole in the box. As soon as the parents come by, you'll see that their mouth is always wide open. Hey, come on, I'm hungry. (laughs) So it's always kind of fun to watch. (laughs) Each spring, tree swallows and western bluebirds build nests in these boxes and eat insects on the farm. Their habit is to just fly and dart around pretty low because they're snagging insects on the fly. And then they swoop in and feed, boom, immediately. A handsome tree swallow with its white belly and iridescent blue back flies low over the crops, then turns toward a bird box. Here comes one right now. Yeah, here it comes. Without landing, the parent puts an insect in the baby's mouth. Insects like flea beetles, which love eating plants from the brassica family. Which is, you know, the broccoli, in particular bok choy, Radish leaves, that sort of thing, you know. And uh, some of it's just cosmetic, but sometimes they can outright kill plants. Right around this time of year when the birds begin to leave? I notice that there's a lot more flea beetle damage. So the birds help with pest insects, and they're getting something back from the farm. These bird boxes are simple, but they're important. Pesticide use and habitat loss shrunk the bird population in North America by almost 3 billion since 1970. That's nearly a 30% drop. The whole ecosystem feels that loss, since birds pollinate plants and, like on this farm, control pest insects. Birds, like tree swallows and western bluebirds, would naturally build nests in tree cavities, but the plywood boxes all over the farm are a good substitute. They also work well for barn owls. In his barn, Tamora points out the one box where barn owls have nested the last eight years or so and help control his number one rodent problem. There are a lot of gophers. (laughs) 
I mean, we trap them, but we, there's no way you're going to get them all. On the ground, I see white droppings and... You see the big clumps of regurgitated gopher. Owls eat their prey whole and cough up the fur and bone they can't digest. And there's only one reason why a farmer would put up with all of this garbage. Well, they eat a lot of gophers. A lot. Matt would know the numbers, but it's pretty astounding. The Matt he's referring to is Humboldt State Professor Matt Johnson. While Dennis Tamora spends his day farming and getting to know the birds around him, Johnson spends his day studying birds on farms. I meet him in American Canyon in Napa County. The Wapo are the indigenous people here, and they managed this place um, with a lot of traditional fire, keeping it an open grassland, huge oaks that the you know first European colonizers waxed poetic about. Um, but a lot of that habitat is gone and been replaced by vineyards. We're actually in a vineyard, walking towards an owl box that's about 15 feet off the ground. See all the scratches on the outside of the hole there? Clearly active. So yeah, we approach the box, quietly check it out, and then I'll just extend this uh, painter's pole. With a GoPro camera attached to the top, which connects to his phone. And then quietly slip the GoPro into the box and then get a view of what's inside the box on my phone. Male and female, I can see an egg underneath the female. I'm gonna get out of there. He's checking the boxes for nests and eggs. People have built birdhouses for centuries. And Johnson says farmers from Chile to South Africa put up barn owl boxes. That's because they've seen barn owls eat rodents on their farms. So they don't necessarily need a lot of scientific evidence uh, to show that this is working. They're seeing it on the ground. But there wasn't a lot of data supporting these observations. So Johnson began the Barn Owl Research Project in 2015. His team installed infrared cameras in owl boxes all over Napa Valley and tracked what owls hunted at night. And they put GPS trackers on owls to see where they hunted. Our estimate is that a family of barn owls removes 3,400 rodents from the landscape every year. So some of these farms, like this one, um, that has you know 20 occupied boxes, you're talking about 70,000 rodents removed every year. One-third of those were right from vineyards. A few weeks later, I meet Johnson and three grad students at another Napa vineyard. Highway 29's off in the distance, and we're surrounded by vineyards and fields of mustard. As the sky darkens, I can see constellations get brighter. The team is here to put ID bands on barn owls to study them for years to come. We walk down to a box wearing headlamps. First, they check the box, and I learn what baby owls sound like. So I'm hearing, my microphone is getting this like, this whooshing sound. Yeah. That's the babies. That's the babies? Yeah. yeah. There's like four babies right here. Yeah, the babies make the sound that sounds like white noise on TV. Static. <laughs> it's very staticky, yeah. Oh my God, that's so weird. <laughs> Next, they set a trap for an adult returning to feed its young. Can you direct me? <laughs> Yeah, can you feel that little peg? This? Yeah. It's supposed to rotate into a little... Uh, 
It's designed so that when an owl enters the box, a little door swings shut. Some little LED lights will come on. <laughs> so then we'll know, you know, we're standing a couple hundred yards away, but we'll know from here, oh, there's a bird in the, in the box. After a short wait, a, an adult owl flew in. We think it might be the female. She landed on the box. Oh, there she, she's, there it is. She's inside. Let's go. She's feeding them. They stop the owl from escaping out of the side door. Oh, no. Working quickly, Johnson reaches in, grabs the adult owl's feet, and pulls it from the box. For just a moment, the owl is facing me. Its white wings spread wide out from its heart-shaped face. They put a little hood over its head to calm it down. Yeah, you can see that she was hunting. She's got some prey blood on her talon there. So we're going to take here a USGS metal band and open it up with these pliers and then we'll put it around her foot. Laura Chavez holds the owl with confidence and tenderness. Mm, can you lift your head a little bit, buddy? Maybe. Yeah, perfect. And they spend about 20 minutes taking measurements and photos for their research before they put the owl back in the box. Johnson hopes his team's research can enhance a reciprocal relationship between farmers and wildlife. There's no question the landscape we're in, vineyard-heavy Napa County, has been transformed. Barn owls rely on big cavities to build nests, but with so many oak trees gone... When farmers put up these nesting boxes, it's amazing. There's an old conservation model where the idea is that, you know, we need to protect nature from people, you know, and just lock it away and keep people out. The flip side being that we should conserve nature exclusively for people. Neither of those is really quite right. I think we should think about conservation with people, you know, understanding that we are part of the ecosystem um, and we do things that negatively affect some species, but we can also do some things that help species survive and they in return can help us. Back at Blue Heron Farms outside Watsonville, farmer Dennis Tamora says, having the barn owls, tree swallows, and western bluebirds nest in boxes on his farm has done more than just offer pest control. They help him see his farm more deeply. Seeing what you're looking at, it's different than just looking and watching. It's like seeing, oh yeah, okay, now I can pick out those birds, all right. And you know, there's times when you think, why didn't I see that, you know? <laughs> for me, they just enhance the whole environment. And obviously they do some help for us. And you're providing a home for them. Yeah, I guess you say. <laughs> and that seems like a pretty fair trade. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse. Here comes a parent right there. Lisa's piece was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network which is a nonprofit investigative news organization. She produced this piece while in residence at the studios of Key West.
And that's the California Report magazine for this week, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon, and welcome back to our longtime director, Susie Racho. Amanda Font is our producer, and this week we had help from Alex Hall, Holly J. McDeed, and Hector Arsate. Our supremely talented sound engineer is Brendan Willard. I'm Sasha Coca. Have a great long weekend. This is the California Report Weekly Magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.